and we're live. Uh, thank you, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to episode eleven of the Redesign Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Ritvik Gautam, and I'm joined by my co-host, Shruti Goli. Uh, this is the podcast where we talk, where where we see if we can talk to enough intelligent people, will we will we learn something about the relationship between design and growth? And keeping with that trend, we're joined today by someone who I'm very excited to talk with, uh, Monty Nan. Uh, Monty is an investor at Julian Capital. He's also the founder of Katena. Uh, and as, as always, I feel like you'd do a better intro of yourself than I would, Monty. So uh, why don't you tell every, all the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, about your journey and, and how you got to where you are right now? No, absolutely. Thanks again for having me here, Red and Shruti. Um, so quick background on myself is born and raised in the Philippines for most of my life. Um, my first ever foray, I guess, into founding something was back home. Um, I spoke two, three, I spoke three different languages growing up and I just realized there was some things you can say in one language that you can't express in another. Um, and my country have about 160 different languages, only two of which are being taught in schools. And so one of the first projects I ever worked on was going around to different indigenous communities um, around the country and um, trying to take not just their languages, but their stories. Because I feel like it's the stories that really tell us a lot about the people and that make you understand sort of like how the people before you thought. Um, so mm -hmm. you went around to a few communities, got their indigenous stories. Um, I ended up pitching the Department of Education back home to see if they would provide resources for us. And they agreed. I don't know why they, how they agreed to a high schooler doing all of this. <laughs> you were um, in high school? It was in high school. So it was really like Damn. the first like, holy shit, I, if I have an idea and I can pitch people on it and bring resources together, I could really make something happen. And so we actually went out to some of those communities and took some of their languages um, and turned that into a, um, just like a learning platform with the Department of Education. So that was my first ever foray into. You um, set the bar so high, Monty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Normal high school path. Let me tell you that. <laughs> no, but very appreciative as well of just like very different background growing up in the Philippines and not seeing as much, I guess, mm -hmm. of it as well back home and so post that I knew I wanted to go to the US um, and really try I heard so much about America and how it was a lot more like low power distance you could probably get a lot more done and so I ended up going to Penn for undergrad um, post that um, went to Canada and founded another startup um, within the prop tech space so mm -hmm. we we're helping real estate developers around Vancouver Toronto um, figure out rental pricing over there. We, I scaled that company out with my co-founder. And after that company um, came back to the US, uh, worked McKinsey for a few months, realized that it wasn't for me after having been a founder. I feel like it's like the, it's usually the opposite path. Lasted like yeah. a little bit over half a year. Uh, <laughs> left McKinsey and then went back into the startup world. And my the two latest things I'm working on right now is... Um, I work at, I helped run a fund called Julian Capital. We're a $15 million seed stage fund. Um, and at the same time, founded a company called Katena. Um, based on my experiences, really um, back home in the Philippines. And a little bit more about Katena is uh, in all my previous companies, I, I'd started hiring folks from back home um, mm -hmm. who I just thought were super sharp. And one of the biggest things I think personally that I realized was opportunity isn't created equal in the world, but talent is yep. I really, the only difference really between me and someone back home in the Philippines was I got to go to school in the US um, and they didn't and 
so many of them are super sharp, but there's not enough opportunity to do sort of create things back home. And so I started helping YC founders mainly hire people who are like chemical engineers, product managers, third year law school students from back home to be their operations associates. Um, and it was a huge win-win where for them, it's like eight, nine bucks an hour is already 30, 40% more than my friends back home would be making. But mm-hmm. for, a YC, for a founder in the US, that was crazy, like $1,200, $1,300 a month um, for a person who is a third year law school student or a chemical right. engineer to be your associate. And so that's how Katena got started. And now we mainly work with founders to sort of scale out their operations teams. That's awesome. And, and that's, uh, yeah, you guys just kind of compete with brunt work and, and like those kind of guys, like the, uh, or, or is there, is there like another, another aspect to it that I'm not saying just, 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 just so that we understand exactly sort of yeah. where it's at. Yeah. No, absolutely. So my, my, we actually do things quite differently where we do direct placements. And I think that there, there's one thing, so we do direct placements into companies as opposed to do a managed service model. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think one of the biggest things for me was in the past, I'd hired out some agencies as well. I realized I was paying them 15 bucks an hour. And then when I talked to my person later on in Filipino, <laughs> I realized they were getting paid $5 an hour and the person was taking a $10 spread. And I was like, shit, that just doesn't sit yeah. right. Like, right. Why not just hire someone directly for eight, nine bucks an hour, actually yeah. give them way higher salary and then also give them opportunities to grow. Where I think the issue with a lot of these platforms that are managed services That's is awesome. it's just hard for you to get someone super sharp because there's no incentive. They know that they're going to be staying in the managed mm-hmm. service forever. And so the smartest mm-hmm. people, actually, when I talk to all my friends from back home in high school, they only want to work for companies where they can grow, of course. And that means direct placements to a YC founder who, mm. if you work and hustle really hard, will promote you into yep. a different role. Right. Absolutely. And, that and makes how, a lot of sense. Uh, how do you like set your candidates up for growth or how do you work with founders to enable that? So it is a win-win. Yeah. One of the things that I realized, especially working with a lot of my founder friends is most of the time the relationship fails, not because the person isn't sharp, like the assistant isn't sharp. It's because uh, founders sometimes don't know how to over communicate or delegate things to other mm-hmm. folks. And, and I think that's one of the most important things that we like to work with um, our, our type of uh, our clients on is we run a lot of executive coaching as well with them. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately after an assistant is on board, we teach an executive assistant, for example, hey, like what please create like number one create a user manual for yourself i think that's that uh, that's one thing a lot of execs should learn it's like oh what are all of the unsaid things um that someone coming to your company might not know so for example mm-hmm. what takes you off as an executive and if when you get ticked off what are the different things that someone working with you should know to be able to sort of maybe calm you down what are your communication preferences do you prefer that someone you work with over communicates tells you like this is what i do at the start of the day or the end of the day or do you rather prefer they just give things to you acing and asana and it's these small details um mm-hmm. that add up to making a very successful yeah. i think relationship with an assistant awesome. so something like, we actually run a lot of trainings like this with exec even how do you get your assistant for example to fully take on um a lot of your emailing so you're just mm-hmm. dictating the whole time because you can speak up to seven times faster than you can write and so once you start getting into the mindset of speaking a lot um you're able to be much more efficient yep uh that 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 makes a lot of sense i so i think what's 
what's exciting for me, right? Uh, and and this is this is something that I, I wanted to talk about. Uh, just switching gears slightly uh, about about your your role in Julian Capital. Uh, I know that Julian Capital's focus uh, is on the design growth linkage, right? Um, and and you're you're intimately focused on helping the startups develop the right brand, the right customer acquisition strategy. And uh, I, what I would love to know more about is as an investor, right? Like outside looking in, uh, how do you, how do you weight a, like a company's product and what, what importance do you assign to it uh, in, insofar as its ability to grow? And especially at the seed stage, right? Like, so uh, later on when someone's established product market fit and there's like sort of like a more, like the metrics are sort of more mature, it's, it's different. But at the seed stage, like what are some early indicators that, that you look for in terms of like success and how much of that is like product based. The biggest thing actually that I take a look at, um, at the seed stage is market. It's, it's like what we call market pull. So it's mm-hmm. how much, um, like how much do people want this type of product out there? Um, where, for example, if you could take a media, and I feel like we've seen a lot of examples of this, um, in the past where you could take a so, so team with insane market pull where, um, people just really want that product um, and they're still able to bring something to a, a pretty solid stage and then hire into it um, as opposed to conversely sometimes you see folks with a stellar team not enough market pull market pull meaning um, like inherently like if I just show this to a bunch of people is are they solving like a proper need um, without necessarily needing to have the best UX UI growth um, mm-hmm. uh, and if you had a stellar team no market pull then it ends up becoming a long slog because then they're they're good enough to be able to get this to a medium level but it never really um creates massive traction and so actually more so than anything else on that that we look of course like i love investing a lot of of, um, ex-product managers because you can just see that they really care a lot about how things show up how things are designed like how easy it feels to people but i think taking a step back it's market pull first um, because even if you have a really shitty product at the start, um, the people that maybe is a little bit harder to use, people will slog through it if there is an actual um, true need over there. And so um, not to over-index too much on is this too easy of an experience at the start. So, so can you actually just just for so for so that our listeners can conceptualize, right? Like, what would be an example of a product with? like great market pull, but, you know, maybe it started off being a little more rudimentary or like, you know, not as sophisticated, but you, you sense like, Hey man, this has got excellent market pull. Like what, what would be an example uh, if, if you could think of one uh, so that, so that people kind of know where, uh, where to index a product like that. Yeah. I mean, I have a few examples off the top of my head. Um, not necessarily in the sense of um, do they have, not the best products at the start. I guess Airbnb would be um, one example. I mean, Airbnb mm-hmm. at the start was taking a lot of things off of Craigslist um, yep. first, but then they immediately saw that even though it was starting off as a jankier type of experience, a lot of people really wanted it. And I think this creates, th- there are a few categories of market pull um, that tend to come out. So one of them is, for example, is this something that's creating new income opportunities? So you got mm-hmm. Airbnb that, makes renting viable income screening for a ton of people. Um, right. Another one is, um, are you creating additional investment opportunities for people? So you got Republic, 
which made startup investing viable for people who weren't just um, accredited investors. And I feel like that's another category generally of market pull um, out there. So just two examples off the top of my head in terms of um, types of market pull that can exist out there. For sure. Uh, I, so I think, I think that's, that's really helpful, right? And, and I think from, from my perspective, right, um, we were in the space of like catering, like our, our product caters to like PMs, UX designers, user researchers. And so we're often plugged into that, that world and, and like sort of that zeitgeist view. And uh, as oftentimes, right, like, you know, there's a saying, there's like an adage, like for a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I feel like oftentimes, right, like with, with the P, like in the product world, everyone's like, everyone sees like pro product as like the anathema and the cure-all for everything. It's like, hey man, you build better product, it will fix everything and 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 i feel like sometimes that's that's sort of disingenuous right like I, and and uh i think oftentimes a reality check is necessary where where it's like hey earlier on right you need to like you could build the sexiest product but if it's not solving a problem right like that that like people are actually willing to like pay to have solved and there's enough people willing to pay to solve it and uh you know that then then you're just building like at, at that point you're just building like a piece of art like you know uh and <laughs> and and, 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 and I'm, i actually like i'm curious because prior to julian capital also you know you built a startup and it was extremely successful right so you're going from having that product mindset to sitting on the other side as well like how how did that experience influence you now as an investor or yeah even again now you're a founder as well so i like i like having you here right now because you're offering so many different perspectives but curious yeah. to see um yeah and learn more about that yeah i think there were a few learnings for me um founder wise like off the top of my head actually the number one thing um that has helped me as well is just intentionality um, so being able to see into the person and be like, and, and, and ask myself, is this, even for me previously, I had to ask myself, am I solving this problem for the sake of solving this problem? Or is mm -hmm. it something that I genuinely want to do? And I feel like a lot of times what we'll see in, especially in very tech hubs is being a founder, raising money is cool for the sake of being cool. And so you then get a lot of folks that are solving or building things um, and trying to fundraise or build venture back businesses um, that, for the sake of building a venture back business. Um, and so the first point I think I learned was intentionality around like, is this something they really care about or that I can see them like really scaling up and building out because they truly, even if this doesn't work out, would care about the problem. So intentionality was the first thing I learned. The second one too was, I think the nuance between venture back and non-venture back um, were um, having done both sides of the equation now as a VC back founder, VC and, <laughs> <laughs> um, like a down, like just yeah. pure cash flow business right now mm -hmm. uh, it's very much seeing like hey like a lot of business should not be venture back and a lot of founders should not take on venture funding because that's not the life that they want to live um, it, and it really depends like what's your intentionality behind this is it to just build out like a few million dollars in revenue cash flow business or try and sell your business in your first few years or are you really trying or, or is there like a massive problem that does need the economics of venture funding um, to to make it work. And if it's and a lot of times I think people then tend to mix it up and actually want and try to raise money for a venture back business for but what they actually want as an outcome is really just a cash flow uh, type business. And no, they're just like not helping anyone out over there. So 
I think that was sort of the second um, thing that I learned from my, my experience um, as a founder. Right. That's, uh, I think that's interesting, right? Especially, especially with the current economic climate. I feel like that was inarguably like five years ago, not even five, like you take 10 years ago, even like, you know, uh, it was way easier to raise capital, right? Like you could, you could show up with a deck and you can walk out with a check, right? Like, you know, and that's, and, and that was, that was, uh, that was true then. And, uh, but when, when there's like an economic climate like this, I feel like there's, there's a tightening of the belt, but it's not like, VCs are not going to disburse capital. Like that's their only mandate. Their mandate is to invest, right? Like, so they're going to invest, but they're just going to invest looking at different metrics, right? Or, or like looking at different things. And I feel like a, a lot of the early were heavily like, I mean, uh, the reason why you could walk into the deck is because what, what that was is you could, you could garner investment based on vision, right? And, and like, and that was enough, like a vision and, and like a strong team was enough to get you funded, uh i do you what is what is what is your read on this do you feel like that's changed do you feel like uh the metrics for investment have changed and and if so what are they now like at least for for julian or like you know generally uh you know in in, in vc circles like how how do you how do you wait how do you wait which company to invest in in times like these I yeah, I mean things have definitely changed. You're seeing valuations um, start to come back to normal, um, and people aren't yoloing money <laughs> as much. <laughs> in general, yeah. Uh, what, what we're seeing, yeah. So I guess take uh, on a broad level, absolutely. I feel like definitely have seen that. We're seeing too though is like within the hottest deals in the market, there mm-hmm. still is a lot of interest where it's like. Uh, it's not necessary that uh, I think across the board valuations have gone down and it might be harder across the board to fundraise, but then across the startups that shine the most because everyone is still a limit. Everyone still has the capital to deploy. Um, and now there are limit, uh, there are more limited set of deals. We're starting to see that as another phenomenon. It's like, mm-hmm. it is more important now as well to not just be able to pick the right deals, but to know where, where to source the deals. Um, as, like what other sourcing channels that other VCs don't have and also how to win the deals because um, then the really good deals are also much harder to win because then there's a higher concentration of people trying to get into them. So there's right. just like, some observations um, mm-hmm. that we've seen. And I think the uh, other, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I think just another quick thought here um, that I've realized as a, as a learning is making sure to see as many deals um, out there um, as, as possible. So that mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes what I see with other investors is um, if you don't see that many deals per year, then you, what you think is a top 1% deal, you're in, I mean, it isn't actually, you're just investing in local maxima as opposed to global maxima when you see um, a ton more deals out there. And that's sort of one of the things that I've started learning, especially we launched this a website called um, C-Checks um, two months ago. Um, have seen thousands of submissions to it since. And what we, we've done basically is partnered up with folks like Ryan from Product Hunt, Mod Merc- from Mercury, Arash from Dropbox, mm-hmm. um, and made it very easy for a lot of founders to, base- to pretty much write two sentences, submit their deck, and we, we pass it along to a lot of the super angels. But through that, I've ended up seeing thousands of deals 
over the right. like, over 3000 deals over the course of the past two months. And that just builds up the pattern recognition to see, is this truly a top 1% founder out of the broader uh, pool of things? Mm -hmm. and, and I think it becomes much more important now for, to do that. Right. And, and so like, but, but in terms of actually considering these deals, right? Like, um, you spoke to market pull, but is there like outside of the macro play of like, Hey, you know, you're looking at more deals and there's more, and like, you know, valuations are down and more investors are bidding on like what would still be a hot deal in this market. Right. Like, but when you're assessing individual companies, do you feel like the fundamental metrics have changed? Like what, what was making people YOLO earlier? Right. Um, because I mean, the, if the metrics are about like, cash flow positivity or, you know, profitability or, uh, uh, you know, or like, you know, just, just like more conservative growth patterns or like sustained growth, right? Like that, if, if those are sort of the, the, the metrics at play now, the, all of these metrics also existed 10 years ago, but why were they given less importance? Was it just like people were more willing to bet because money was free or is it just, uh, like, yeah, what, what, like, how have the metrics changed? Right. So I'm a bit hesitant to, to comment on exact percentages or numbers, since I know that matters uh, differently from, for a lot of different people. Um, so I'll take it much more around the uh, perspective of, yeah, I do think in the past, it was just like a lot more free money. Folks were more um, willing to maybe take extra bets. People were also feeling a lot of FOMO um, uh -huh. in the market, as opposed to now people are, I think, like feeling a little bit more, uh, grounded on a tactical level um, when we do look at things so uh, would it be uh, maybe what might be helpful then is I can chat about sort of like tactically what are some of the things to look at uh, that we end up looking at and for me it's basically uh, things what I've learned is I'll take a look at hey um, one of the examples competitive landscape wise are there um, a lot of incumbent players that might be able to easily um, create a solution for this and and of course incumbent players generally move too slow um, right. to be able to create it so it's more like is this is there like maybe a tech forward incumbent player that can easily add this on um less worried really about like the massive companies mm -hmm. uh, because you're going to move way too slowly for this right. um, another one is have they been able to at least for me um i invest in some we end up investing some frontier tech type deals like deep tech software and it's like have they been able to create um a product that already works as is even though it's a miniaturized version um of a future um product that they want to commercialize and so those mm -hmm. are sort of two of the, some of the more tactical things that i'll end up looking at within the vc side got it um so i think i think for me right like the, the, this podcast is like the, the reason we, we call it redesign growth is because we're, we're what we're trying to drill down on is like how, how does product drive growth, right? Like that, I think that if there was like a common thread or like a common question that tracks between all of our episodes, it would be that. It's like, we're talking to different people, but we want to understand like, you know, be it from the VC perspective or like the UX designer perspective or the CEO perspective, like, hey, what role does product play in driving growth? Um, it looks like we might've lost Shruti's feed for a second, but that's okay. Um, so in-, in Sorry about that. No worries. Uh, so yeah, like in your opinion, right? How do you how do you see the role of product? Like it, you know, and and it could be it, it doesn't have to be a digital product. Right? Again, it could be 
uh, like Katina's product is is like the the resources, the talent, and and its ability to source that talent. So like, how do you how do you see adding incremental product? How do you make decisions to diversify your product offerings, etc.? And what is the calculus in terms of hey, how is this thing I add going to drive growth? How how is this additional feature or this additional service or etc.? How how do you how often do you factor growth in before you think about adding another feature? And then broad scale, like how do you think about uh, the relationship between product and growth? So I'll start off with the, the broad scale in terms of product driving growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and from, from my perspective, like it's, you always want, like when we invest in the startups, we try to take a look at startups that have a lot of product-led acquisition motions. And I do think mm-hmm. that is one of the things where like, as you think about like adding product, adding specific features, like the most useful ones are the ones that can drive PLA. Um, some examples of that, for example, are um, encouraging, does this product encourage some users to invite other users? If you send someone a Zoom link, um, then the lead, the person who creates the Zoom link, um, then invites everyone else basically to then hop onto Zoom as a product. Um, mm-hmm. Or is it something like um, Venmo, where you're owed money by someone, um, hence you have to download Venmo as a product um, to be able to then receive your money. Or um, I think another way of doing this within your product is seeing how some startups turn part of their products into um, like billboards. So super, superhuman, sent by superhumans, sent by iOS. Uh, I think like adding these smaller like product tweaks that makes it much easier for things to catch or um, QuickBooks, this was created by QuickBooks, um, yeah. for example. And so, th- when I think about, I guess, taking the investor side plus the, the product side of things, I do think about like what types of products lend themselves to being able to be shared out as a function of um, sort of some features or products that they've created themselves. And and to kind of like add on to that, like another question I was curious about is how has because Katana has quite some unique like offerings that are different than a lot of people out there today. How did you even come to that? Like, that sounds like you've iterated on your product, which is like, or your business. And like, yeah, how did you go through that? And, and what are maybe some failures you experienced um, and some wins as you're yeah. iterating? One thing that I found really helpful myself is to keep a hypothesis sheet um, where every single week, I kind of have like, this is the hypothesis that I'm testing out this week in terms of either, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in terms of like overall product. Um, and then each week being able to structure, let's say if I'm in the customer discovery phase, structuring a lot of my customer discovery around that of like all my, in, all of my calls should be answering this um, first question of, for example, um, people want um, an executive assistant that is sort of like just much sharper than maybe the, the classic type of assistant you find uh, who can only do scheduling and they actually want someone who's more of a chief of staff um, and doing a lot of customer interviews from that figuring out like yes people actually do want that and then from there figuring out um, like what pricing model um, ends up working and all these other things so I, I just have a weekly running hypothesis list that has helped me I think um, in my previous company Ascend and currently um, with Katana because that means I'm always getting either a dopamine hit in terms of I'm an idiot and this isn't working, um, or I'm onto something here and let me double uh, double down on that. So I think that's one thing that's helped me quite a bit um, with uh, Katena. 
that sense. That's awesome. Uh, for, so now, now I want to talk about like your high school project. Uh, I know we're like pretty far removed from it by yeah, now, yeah, but yeah. it's still, <laughs> first of all, it's fascinating. Like when, when I was in high school, dude, I was getting yelled at for not like finishing my homework. So <laughs> like clearly you and I were doing very different things. Uh, <laughs> I was getting yelled at outside of doing it because I definitely wasn't doing that much homework. <laughs> uh, but, but like in, in that, in that experience, right. Of like building, building a product, uh, you know, to preserve, like, you know, to preserve like in the indigenous Philippine, uh, Filipino languages um, for, for me, like I, I'm Indian, right. Like I, I was, I was born and raised in India and moved here um and uh i've the way people think about product in in india is very different from the way people think about product here uh and 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 i think part of it is like market maturity right like where uh there is still not a budget that's associated with like ux for a lot of companies in in india like or or if, if there is a budget it's paltry given like the scale and scope of the company etc because uh in in india like but like uh, good design is often conflated with like qa okay like if the code compiles and runs it's good like, you know and that's and and i mean that's changing as as like a, a a thesis and like a philosophy there but it makes it makes product building there different Right, like it makes if if that's like the overarching like cultural notion, uh, it makes product building there different. So how how is how how has your experience with like you know product building in in the Philippines like do you find that there's like significant cultural differences that like steer product creation in a different way? I think for me more so than the so. There were a few factors actually when I started. I think it was partly the cultural differences, partly also just being like an early state, like very new founder, where right. we came in actually, we didn't come in to like hypothesis driven, test all of these things out. We came in with like, hey, I think there's a problem here. Let's actually go and solve it. And I think we got lucky that uh, enough people actually want, cared a lot about sort of that problem, um, but to be able to back us and sort of depart Department of Education coming in. Um, with right. us um but the miss I, I previously i used to think a lot more like oh like i think this is maybe true based on my experiences let's just go build a product for it immediately before even mm -hmm. going back um to figuring out whether there's market pull i think the second thing though was still like the high power differential sometimes um was hard though because then it's harder to sort of push back on things um in, mm -hmm. and, and I think like even though it doesn't tie directly to a difference in product building mindset is an overall like operations overall just like startup building mindset is it's a little bit harder to push back on things and so it becomes harder than to figure out where your failure points are. And, and I think that's something I, I noticed myself when I first came to the US um, was when I, even when I worked at McKinsey or was at Warden, I was very afraid to speak up. Um, mm. and, okay, like yeah. I think this is stupid. I don't think this is true. Um, I actually think that is one really big difference culturally, and you, I, you've probably seen it as well. I feel like in Asian culture yeah. is much more like that, which does lend itself to less fast speed of iteration, um, because a lot of people just go along until something sometimes fails, and they're like, "Oh shit!" For sure, uh, yeah. I, I'll never forget. Like, uh, like I tried to sell in back home and, and I failed like you know and I thought I thought 
it was like, oh, like I'm, I'm Indian, <laughs> like you know, like I, I, I'll, I'll go, like I'll, I'll, I know, I know how to get in these rooms, and I'll be able to go there and sell. And that was, that was like notionally what I had in mind. And I'll never forget this. Like, I was on a call with like a large Indian bank, right? Like this is, it's like one of the largest Indian banks. Um, and it was supposed to be a demo. It was supposed to be a demo of our platform. Right. And I, there was like 15 people on the call, right? Like there was 15 people on the call. And there was only there was only one person that talked, right? Like the other fifteen people were absolutely silent for the majority of it until I was like, any questions? And then like all of them felt the need to ask a question, right? Like even if even though like I know that like you know it was not like they were like I have to because like you know that super interesting call like I have to ask a question, right? And um and and also like the like the meetings just kept happening like no one will turn you down for a meeting like you just take just take meetings and meetings and meetings and meetings but like ultimately like a close just was just like this distant dream and and it's because like personally they had reservations but they were never voiced right like it was like oh like we don't have the budget for this that was the reason why like you know because like i said like you know there was like a low maturity uh low budget for these kind of things but that no one was just like hey man i don't have the cash for this because I mean that, like that would have saved everybody time, right? Like we would have just been like, okay, hey, like you know, this is a bad fit, no, no problem, no, no hard feelings. Everyone move about your day. It's like, no, no, Ritwich, let's meet again. I think there's like a lot of value here, and like you know, it's like, okay, let's meet again. All right, I'll show you my product once more. <laughs> and like right. every time, there would just be no, no, like pathway to a close, and it's because like nobody just wanted to out and be like, hey, man, this ain't happening. Right, like right. yeah, exactly. It's you just get led on and just waste everyone's time because then they feel bad, you feel bad. It's better just slapping in the face in the first day. Like, yeah. Yeah. Tell me you don't want it. It's all yeah. That's, uh, I, yeah. I, I'm just like checking the time. I want to save some time for my favorite part of the podcast, Monty, which is okay. getting to know you deeper and personally. So it's just like me going to throw a bunch of questions at you, just really to like. Yeah, get to know you really personally. And um, I'll start with... Oh, that's it. Okay. What like what do you think drove you to your, your realization that you wanted to be a founder? And then what drove you to wanting to be an investor? Like what internal realizations did you have? On the founder part, um, this is something that it was very counterintuitive to me because coming from the Philippines, especially and coming from, I think... It, it, a lot of it is very much like, hey, let's go for the more prestigious thing over necessarily the thing that where you can grow the most. Um, and I ran one exercise once when I felt very lost. Uh, a coach gave it to me. I thought this is one of the most helpful things I've done. Um, and I asked myself, when was the last time I felt at my best? Um, and I think every time before when I had founded something, it was more I'd fell into it. And really the, the time that I figured out like I am like happiest when I'm building my own thing came after this. And my answer to when I last felt my best was when I was building out my company in Canada. This was like in the middle of McKinsey when I was like, sure, maybe doing this go back to corporate world. Not, I was just not happy at all. And I was like, okay, what about it? When I was in Canada, though, building out my company made me feel at my best. And it came down to three things. The first one was I could have a hypothesis in the world, Mm -hmm. uh, and go out on a weekly basis and either be told I'm an idiot or not. And so just high grade, high like uh, rate of learning um, about something I cared about. Number two 
was I was able to build genuine relationships with people. So a lot mm. of my clients will still go to karaoke with sometimes when I fly back to Vancouver because uh-huh. I was like, if I can't, if I can't help you, I'm not going to try and force like my solution down your throat. And so I just could feel that every genuine, every relationship I've built, mm-hmm. I had agency over it to be a lot more genuine. And the third thing was actually just like agency over what I did. It wasn't necessarily like, I feel like as a founder, sometimes people think, oh, you can do whatever you want to whenever you want to. I think it's much more, you never have to do what you don't want to when you don't want to do it. You still have to do everything else. Um, But those three things, the agency part, especially I realized was the biggest thing then for Mm -hmm. for me. Um, And so I realized that after doing that, I I went back across all my previous life experiences with one of my best friends from um, the Philippines and I went through but work and life experiences and sort of still like what are the deal breakers or just like what are the truths about Monty that need to happen for Monty to be happy um and I realized like coming out of that being a founder and sort of building um was most conducive for me to be able to feel truthful to those and like to stop I think like for me how I think about a lot of things too is like am I breaking trust with myself by doing this or not um, I think like this is the one way for me to think about like I'm not breaking trust with myself. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I I related to Rit. I don't know if you felt this way, but I really related to the way he put all of this together. I think it was yeah. nicely put, and that's yeah, how I, 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 I think there's something about like you know, everyone everyone talks about being your own boss as like an unequivocal positive, and and, and it is like it's awesome, right? Like it's empowering, etc. But also being your being your own boss. Like it also involves a like a metric fuck ton of restraint because yeah. you are in charge of slapping your own hand out of the cookie jar, like you know, like or like there's no one, no one who's gonna, no one's gonna be your taskmaster. You have to be that yourself. No one's gonna be your disciplinarian. You have to be that yourself, right? Like no one's gonna tell you to to like course correct. You have to do that yourself, right? Like and and I feel I feel like for for you to be. A, a, like a good boss of yourself you need to have that like that rubric of like hey what is what does happiness look like like just objectively or as objectively as you possibly can for yourself right like just be like hey man like what are my what are my personal deal breakers and yeah. am i running afoul of them or not uh and and uh, a lot of people like don't have that north star building because you, you get into the founder game and i mean obviously everyone knows it's like ten thousand problems right uh but but you you should only be doing it if you're loving doing it like that's that's why you do it right like that's the, i think that's you can only get do. i think you can only be successful if you're able to wake up and say i have a hundred problems and i'm excited to still go about my day you know yes. like that's not a feeling that everyone tackles like is able to handle even i think so um yeah thank you for sharing that and do you no. have like any words of wisdom with all your experiences <laughs> for anyone who wants to I don't know, become a founder, become an investor, really anything like that aligns with your internal values. I mean, I think that would be the biggest thing. It's just like thinking through like, well, I think actually one thing that I used to not believe in as much that I do now is just feeling into things and knowing that given a set of facts, I could most likely convince myself to a yes or a no. Um, if I like took one set of facts and spin it in one way or another, but as I gave myself more freedom, more space to mm-hmm. take a step back and like feel into it, I actually realized like, yeah, like your body kind of knows um, what feels right to you or what doesn't feel right to you. And, and, and taking 
time to be hyper intentional about why you start something. I think was the biggest thing. It's like, don't start like being a founder isn't for everyone as well. I feel like a lot of people always think that like, oh, I should be a founder, but it's so, like for some people, like you're working the nine to five is actually the perfect thing to make them happy and to make them feel very fulfilled. Um, or, and a lot of times, second point here is a lot of times people think like, hey, I should start a VC back company, but maybe starting a cash flow business so you can take your family back home and sort of create that life for yourself is the best thing based on what you want as a person. And so it all goes back to feeling into it, I think, and feeling like, are you breaking trust yourself by doing this? Um, or yeah, is this something you really want to do or something that you just think is a fad right cool, now or like sexy right like yeah. it's not it's nothing to do with being cool or sexy i think i think you really have to figure out internally what drives you and fulfills you um otherwise you're not going to be successful in what you're doing i think exactly yeah and so i think there's no right answer to any of it except what you feel is right to you uh, no i think the right answer is understanding yourself right yeah. and then taking action based off of that so uh yeah so, uh, Wow, wise I, words from Monty. <laughs> I think this I think that's like an excellent, excellent note to end on. Uh Monty, thank you so much for joining us. This has been very informative. We've touched upon so many different things. And for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning into episode eleven uh of the Redesign Growth Podcast. Uh we hope you've learned something, you've had a good time, and we'll be back next Friday with another episode. Um, same time, twelve PM Mountain. Uh until then, have a great day. And have a great weekend. Thank you, Monty. Thanks, 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 Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.